You're listening to the Growth Experts Podcast. So if you're looking to 10X your business by learning proven growth strategies, you're in the right place. During my interviews with top CEOs, entrepreneurs, and marketers, I dig deep to uncover the real strategies, hacks, and tools to help you achieve your goals. And I'm your host, Dennis Brown. Hey, have you ever wondered how I generate thousands of inbound leads per year using LinkedIn? Well, this episode is sponsored by my guide, The Ultimate Guide to Generating Inbound Leads with LinkedIn. This is the definitive guide on how to consistently generate inbound leads using LinkedIn and social selling. So if you want a copy of that guide, just send a text to 44222 with the word L-I guide, all one word, L-I guide to 44222, or you can go to my website at askdennisbrown.com forward slash guide. Now let's get on with the show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. And today we have yet another amazing guest. His name is Richard Lau, and he's generated millions of dollars in revenue in the internet industry. NamesCon, his person, you know, his in-person conference focused on domain names began as an idea in the fall of 2013, is now part of the GoDaddy family. Resume.com is an online resume builder for millions of job seekers and is another of Richard's recent successful exits, this time to Indeed.com. His current project is called Logo.com, an AI-powered logo maker that has the ability to design a unique logo for your company in just a few minutes. So welcome to the show, Richard. Thanks, Dennis. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. It's really interesting. I love talking to dot-com guys, guys that build businesses from dot-coms because you know, my entry into, I guess, the internet world and internet marketing and, and the whole tech space was during the dot-com era, right? I mean, I had I co-founded a company back in 1998. And like most, you know, it went into ashes with, the, with everything that transpired after 9-11 and the markets and all that. But, you know, we're not here for a sad story today, but we are here to talk about some of the success you've had in building off of those types of business models. Because back then, that was a big thing. Everybody would get a .com, they'd go raise a bunch of money, and then they'd you know, fail miserably. The market has evolved a lot since then, and you've been able to have several successful exits. And so today, just to tease everybody, we're going to talk about something different. We're going to talk about something that Richard has done. He's failed at, he's made mistakes at, but he's also learned from and is now capitalized on in and around how to, how to position and package your business for exit today when you might not exit that business for several years into the future. And so he's going to share some tips, some mistakes he's made, some things he's learned. And I thought it was really relevant because, you know, if you're successful at building a business, in many cases, your dream is to exit, right? You some point want to sell that business and get a big payday. You know, I was blessed to do that a couple of times. Richard's been blessed and, and I hope you listening will also be blessed to have that. So hopefully some of these tips work. So Welcome to the show. Why don't you give us a quick backdrop on kind of how you got here and then uh, we'll dig right in. Sure. Yeah. I hear the uh, the podcast is four hours, so I've got lots of time. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. So I've been in the domain name business for about well, just over 20 years. So I've been, I've seen the ups and downs. I've seen super premium domains names come across my desk. I've been involved in buying and selling and I built up a collection of what I call super premium domains. Domains that are one word .coms that we could build a business on. And so resume.com is one of them, we, which we did successfully. Logo.com is the one we're working on right now. You know, once for the future, I've got face.com, rides.com, hockey.com. You know, so we've got the, this inventory that myself or my kids are going to work on. And so, you know, 
the super premium domains, yeah, the we're not out here raising hundreds of millions of dollars and then blowing it on, you know, fully stocked kitchens and, and two-story slides in the office. We're building real businesses, you know, it's a real bootstrapped business. And, you know, we we focus on things that we are excited about and that you know we live by a mantra of be helpful. And so we were able to do that in the the Namescon conference uh, space where we, we built up a conference where we saw a, a hole in the market to build community. We did that in the resume space where we built up 4 million users helping you know, mostly high school students and college grads get a better job than they would have if we didn't exist. And now we're doing the same with Logo where we're taking that three-week process that you would have building a logo and we're squashing that down into 20 or 30 minutes so that you can walk away with a logo that you can use and get, you know, get that process of getting your website up and running as fast as possible. So that, that's my, my 30 year career sandwiched down. But uh, yeah, that takes us to today. Cool. Interesting. So you mentioned something at the beginning, you said you've seen a lot of premium domain names come across your desk, some of which you've acquired, like you talked about some of the exits and you talked about a couple of other assets that you own. Tell me a domain name that came across your desk that you wish you had bought that you didn't. Like, give me oh. an example. I'm sure there's some of those you look back and say, oh, <laughs> shit, I should have bought that one. You know what? I, I've got an even better where it has come into our inventory. We owned it and then we sold it. And I look back and I'm like, what were we thinking? So, you know, we bought a package of domains that included weed.com. And, you know, I've never done cannabis in my life. I have no plans to, but you know, I don't, I don't knock people that do, but I saw the value in the name when we bought it and we sat on it for years. And finally I was just like, let's just clear it out. Like, I don't want to make my money off this. And we, we sold it for basically what we bought it for. And I, you know, it was, which was a hundred thousand dollars, 2008. And now the current value I've been told is between eight and $12 million. (laughs) So that that's an ouch. Yeah. But you know, you know, your successes and failures, you know, people love to talk about their successes, but really when you're looking at an entrepreneur over the lifetime of their business building, it's really just an equation. It's like that, the scales of justice. It's just that you want your successes to outweigh your failures. And as long as you have that, that gap, that's your success because you are going to have failures and, you know, life is going to punch you in the face. And it's, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, and it's a matter of what do you do when you get punched in the face? Are you going to be able to, to take that, get back on the, in the saddle and, and rebuild? Or are you going to be like, oh, I'm down for the count and that's it? Yeah. I mean, especially in a space, I mean, you're in a space, the domain name space where there's a lot of speculative speculation in there, right? I mean, you have to speculate that you know the value, the trend is going to continue and or get better, not go on the downside. You happen to get, you know, kind of take a bad loss on the weed one, but it could have went the other way as well, right? You could have invested oh, a million yeah. and it could have went down to a hundred thousand, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So that's interesting that, you know, that you had that domain actually owned it and then ended up in short selling it. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, very cool. All right, cool. So, all right, so let's do this. There's, we want to talk today about how some of the lessons you've learned about packaging your business up and the things you need to do in advance, the things you need to do today if you want to position your business to sell in the future. And these are all, most of these mistakes we talked about were mistakes or are things that the lessons are mistakes that you've made. And so they're, they, they were very expensive lessons, right? I mean, and so, so there's probably, there might be some sore points in there, but I think the audience will appreciate the fact that this is, 
you know, you're not pontificating. These are actually things that have actually happened to you. So why don't you guide us through that a little bit? I know we had three or four primary tips or lessons that you've learned, and then we'll go from there. Sure. So, you know, starting at the, at the very beginning, you know, when you're building your business, you know, we're, we talk about building a business as an entrepreneur versus, you know, building a business that you're just working for yourself, right? There's a difference between being self-employed and being an entrepreneur. And that's kind of that e-myth philosophy of, of being an entrepreneur where you're working on your business. And so this is an evolution of that, where you're, you're looking at what is my end goal? Is this a lifestyle business that I'm going to do for the next 30 years? Or is this a business that I want to sell? And a lot of, a lot of us want to sell the business. And so this is like having the mindset and learning from someone who's been through the process several times and has made you know, millions of dollars of mistakes. And, you know, I'm going to pass it on to you. I don't have a book. I'm just here to share this information because I don't want people to go through, through a mistake that I've made if, if they can just adopt that mindset now. And so, yeah, you know, there's lots of different things, but here are some, some key ones. And that is look at your business from a prospective buyer's point of view, because when they come and they are buying you, chances are it's not going to be, you know, your, your neighbor. It's going to be a corporation who has an acquisitions department. They're doing two, three, four, five acquisitions per year. So they have a process that is established, that they know, that is the same regardless of the buyer. Their acquisition departments all go along the same due diligence phase. So they're going to, they're going to come in and they're going to ask hundreds of due diligence questions. And so you know, if you are like a deer in the headlights and you, like I was the first time, you're going to not expect these questions and you're not going to know what to do or you're not going to be prepared for it. Whereas if you are working on your business with an exit in mind, when they ask you for a, you know, to set up a a Google, they'll have set up a, a Google shared folder drive and they're like, okay, we want you to upload all of the employee contracts of your current and past employees. We want to see all of, you know, for all of the marketing material and creative, you know, logos or designs that you've used, as well as any software that you've had written. We want to a written copy of the contractors that worked on those pieces of, you know, IP or assets. And we want you to upload those into the data room. They call it a data room, but really it's just a Google Drive. We want you to upload or, you know, Dropbox or what have you. We want to see written, signed contracts. Well, what if you, you, know, you had your buddy do it two years ago and he, you know, you're no longer in touch with him or he's died or you know, he's, he's just or you're you know, not traveling for two months. The, the buyer doesn't care. Or you're, you're not friends anymore, right? What if you, know, you, you did a, a deal you know, where a contractor did a, a, some software or a logo for you and they didn't sign off because you, know, you felt that they overcharged you and you, you paid him his invoice, but then he sent another invoice and you're like, I'm not paying that. And so you've got a payment dispute. Well, now you're not in on terms that you can go and say, hey, oh, by the way, I'm selling for a whole bunch of money. Can you sign this? He's going to be like, oh, you still owe me that last invoice. You know? And you're like, dude, that wasn't a fair invoice. And you're like, I don't care. I, I, or he's like, yeah, I'll sign it. But, you know, and you're fully up to date. We had this happen fully up to date, right? We paid our contractor completely, but we're like, oh, we still need a signature on this sheet. And he's like, oh, I charge a signature 
form signing of $250. Well, that's completely unreasonable, but what are you going to do? You're just going to pay it, right? Because they know that you need to get this signed. You know, so if you're just doing it as you're going through the process, right? You're like, okay, I'm dealing with this person. We have to have our paperwork in order. We have a standard contract. You get them to sign it. That way, when they say, hey, you know, upload your contracts and your signed paperwork, you've already got it. You're just like, oh, yeah, drag and drop, put it over on over. Yeah. I would imagine that when you first did that first due diligence on that first acquisition that you were doing, when they started asking all these questions, you were probably like, oh man, I'm just totally not prepared. You were like, oh shit, I don't have any of this stuff. How am I going to manufacture all this stuff? How am I going to create all this stuff? I mean, this, this could take- right weeks or months or even longer to try to put all that together. Well, you don't even know where to start. You're like, where's that contractor that I used three years ago in the Philippines that built this software for me? And you're exactly. like, he's not even on Upwork anymore and his email's not good. And you're like, man, so yeah. it, so you got to, like you said, you got to put yourself in the mindset of being the buyer of the business. I think that's, I think just fundamentally, that's the piece of advice that everybody that's starting a business that is considering an exit in the future needs to take. I think you need to look at that. And you need to think about the questions that they're going to ask, kind of like some of the questions that Richard just shared with us. You know, who are some of the contractors who built your software? Who did your logos? Who's, you know, what about your copyrights? Do you have trademarks? Do you have all these things in place? You know, do you have contracts with all your employees, right? Do do they have non-competes or NDAs? All these things. I mean, doing those things as you move along is a heck of a lot easier. But the problem is, is that's all the stuff that we skip. As entrepreneurs, we want to move fast and we say, oh yeah, that's fine. Just do it. And then send me an invoice. And you don't think about you know, right. documenting it. It's kind of like when you build software. If you've built software, I'm sure you have. You know, Developers want to develop things fast, right? They want to create things and they want to do it on the fly. You know what they hate doing? They hate documenting their software. <laughs> and what I mean by documenting is you know, they tell what all the code does and they tell all the different touch points and the relevancy and, and all the different pieces of the documentation they hate doing that. They hate doing it. They like creating, but they hate documenting. And I think entrepreneurs are the same way. Exactly. You know, I mean, when we're building logo.com, you know, before we assign customer one, we're looking at, you know, we were building this automated logo maker and, you know, we're inserting fonts into it. And there are some great creative fonts out there, but you have, as a logo maker, you have to be specific about what is the licensing of that font? Because we're, signing our end users and creating logos for them using these creative fonts that were, and these fonts were created by people. And so as we're going through this process, we are looking at our competition and we come across a couple of competitors who are, we're like, wow, that's a beautiful font. I recognize it. And I look, but I'm like, I remember that that font is not available for logo makers. So I go and I connect the dots and sure enough, they're using a font that not only is unlicensed, but the license that is available specifically says it is not allowed to be used in the way that our competitor is using it. And so it's not just the competitor is doing a disservice for themselves because when they eventually go to sell, they're going to have to, you know, it's judgment day. That due diligence is be like, did you ever use a font that was unlicensed? And if you say no, I mean, you're lying. And that's, that's going to, and if you say yes, well, that's going to affect your price. But it's also put all of their customers at risk because all of the fonts that, that were unlicensed that were used in a logo that they sold to an end user is a liability because that license, so the actual copyright owner could make a claim against the clients that use the font. And that's going to be a liability against the logo maker company. And so then the logo maker company 
when they're up, you know, offering themselves up for sale or going through the due diligence process, the purchaser may look at that and say, you know what? We don't want to buy you for any price because you didn't, you cut a shortcut or you didn't do the, you know, you created this skeleton in your closet and you know what? We're out. Whereas when, before we signed customer one, we're thinking about, okay, what is a potential buyer going to want to look at? Okay, well, they're going to want to make sure that all of our licenses are in place. All of the fonts are, are properly documented that we can say for every single customer, for our thousands of customers, we can point to the license for each piece of IP that was included or used as part of building that logo. So yeah, we, you want to cut corners, but you have to think about an exit is like standing in front of your mother when you're 10 years old. You cannot lie to her. She will know. Or it's like standing in front of God on judgment day. They will know. They will ask the questions and they will know. And there's just no, you know, like, oh, I'll just have a skeleton and I can ignore it. You can't ignore it. When you're exiting, the truth comes out on every single aspect. And it doesn't mean that you're unsellable, but it could mean that your sale price is adjusted downwards. And Not so, sure. so yeah. there's a couple of areas that you've talked about. One is contracts with employees, contracts with contractors, contracts with anybody, right? Contracts with your landlord, your lease, things like that. So having contracts in place, having it documented, the relationships with people that you outsource to or work with or whatever. So any sort of a contract, employment agreements or whatever, you got to document all that, right? That all needs right. to be documented, signed and saved and archived so that you always have copies, digital and physical of all that stuff, right? Another area you talked about was licensing of, like you just mentioned that example of licensing fonts. I'm sure the same thing goes for software. I'm sure the same, you know, perfect example. I mean, there's been tons of people that have licensed and built their business around Microsoft software or other software that they actually didn't license, that right. they, they have bootleg copies of or, or whatever, however they got the light, you know, got it to work, but they're not licensed, you know, server licenses and things like that, that are very mm -hmm. expensive right? Yeah. You know, that they've built their business around. And that happened to us at one point a long time ago. I didn't realize that we didn't have licenses, the proper licenses for all our Microsoft server, this different product stuff we had installed on our server. And again, I'm not a techie, but it ended up costing us like $30,000 to, to end up buying that because we had to buy it, backdate it. We had right. to buy it, retroactively <laughs> go back and buy these licenses. And, yeah. you know, those are mistakes that are very costly, but those are things that you know, a buyer is going to be looking for. And they're just smart business anyways, right? right? And then another area you talked about was, uh, so you talk about licensing, you talk about contracts. What else? I think you had talked about something before in our pre-interview where you were talking about, you know, having a lawyer, having lawyers and relationships in that yeah. area before you need them. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, when you're approached or, you know, or in discussions with someone about having them acquire you, what you're going to need two relationships for certain. One is a business broker and one is a lawyer, whether it's a lawyer or a law firm. Let's just talk about the, the business broker for a moment. A business broker isn't just someone who goes out and finds a potential purchaser for your company. Even if you have a purchaser that you know, you know, let's say you're a tow truck company and you're like, I'm just selling to, to my competitor one town over. You still need a business broker because they will remove the emotion from the negotiation. And so the business broker, that's their business is buying and selling. It's like, you know, when you sell your home, you don't just sell it to your buddy and you involve a, a real estate professional. Same thing with when you're selling your business, you need someone in your court, right? The 
acquisitions department, they're of the of the buyer, they're doing this all day long. Who do you have in your court who has done this all day long? That's what you need a business broker for. So don't think of a business broker as someone who's going to sell your company or going to find the buyer. They are there to represent your interests in the negotiations. So you need that business broker. The second piece of the puzzle is a lawyer or law firm to be able to go through all of those legal documents that the acquisitions department is just going to toss on in front of you and say, here, sign this. No, you need to, to read and understand exactly what the reams of legal documents are. It's not going to be a one-page purchase agreement. It's going to be purchase agreements, warranties, representations, earnouts. There may be stock that you're accepting instead of cash. There may be vendor financing. You need to know what are the tax implications you know, are you doing this as a corporation sale or as an asset sale? So you need to have your lawyer. And the time to find that lawyer isn't after you've got entered into negotiations or isn't after you've got the business broker. It's before. So that when you make the call to the lawyer, like, hey, Mike, the, the sale that we've been talking about for years is finally happening. And yes, because, and, and that lawyer is the one who um, may have, been the one to, to draw up the contracts that you're using when you're signing on your employees. So it's, it's, you know, have your lawyer in place. If you don't have one, you know, establish your relationship with a business broker and ask them for a recommendation because then it's someone that they're familiar with and that they've worked with. And so, yeah, a lawyer and a business broker are absolutely fundamental to your exit process. Yeah, I think that just by having a relationship with those, let's say, for example, it's a year or two in advance before you're really thinking about possibly selling the business or putting it up for sale or taking offers for it, they could guide you in actually putting all these pieces in place before you need them, right? Because they're going to know the questions they're going to ask. Because any lawyer who's done these sorts of contracts or acquisitions or has been involved in any sort of a sale is is familiar with you know the documentation and the due diligence required. Business brokers obviously are because they do it every day, day in and day out. That's how they make their money. And so I think having those relationships before you need them, right? It's that dig your well before you're thirsty concept, right? Harvey McKay. And yep. so I think that that's a good, a good sound strategy to help guide anybody through that. That might be a good first step if you're serious is just developing some sort of a relationship. It doesn't mean you need to pay them right now. Maybe you have, maybe there's some sort of a consultation fee and you know you could mm-hmm. just get familiar with them that way, but it's not like you're going to have to put them on retainer because you're not at that right. point yet. So yeah, I think that's really good advice. Anything else you want to add specific to preparing in advance for the sale? Any tips, things you got to do up in advance? I mean, we've covered a lot. I know we talked about licensing. We talked about contracts. We talked about relationships with different you know advisors. What else? Anything else that you want to add? Yeah, I think you know the, the attitude that a lot of us had or a lot of us have is that you know I'm focused on the revenue. I'm focused on either cutting my expenses, raising my revenue. I'm focused on sales and I'm going to let this paperwork slide. But really when you're working on the paperwork, you have to think of it as I'm working on the exit. And so it, that is part of something that you need to chip away at each and every day or every week, but have a, an attitude of this is my work on the exit, because without it, you may not be able to exit. And so having, changing your attitude towards the paperwork, the, you know, the stuff that we hate to do, just change your attitude towards it because you need it for your exit. Yeah. Two other things I want to add to this, just from my personal experience, and I'd like to get your feedback on it, is one is you got to have very clean accounting, right? Meaning you have to, your accounting 
has to be very clean and up to date and done professionally, right? You're not going to be, you don't want the the back of the napkin type of accounting. You don't want the accounting that a typical entrepreneur is going to do themselves, their bookkeeping. You need a CPA that understands what it takes to prepare the financials for a potential seller. And you need those to have those in place. They need to be very clean for at least the last two years, right? And just having the last quarter is not going to be enough, right? <laughs> you need at least a couple of years of very clean financials, right? Done by a professional. That would be number, that's my first tip. Agree or disagree? Yeah. Absolutely. That's, yeah. that's just a basic assumption. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. But I don't want to make the assumption because most entrepreneurs, yeah. they'll skip that too. They will skip that. They'll, they'll file their taxes. They'll do those yeah. things, but they don't document, right. you know, every, right. all the details in between, right? Yeah. And then the other thing is, you know, one thing that I've seen, you mentioned the e-myth comparison of having self-employed versus an entrepreneur and kind of going back to that is, you know, is having the owner or the founder driving most of the revenue, right? Where they become the catalyst for driving most of the revenue. If that's where you are today, where you're, you know, some sort of a service provider, like you're a real estate, you own a real estate company and you're driving 80% of the revenue and your agents are driving the other 20%, you're going to have a major problem when it comes time to selling the business. Versus if you're generating 20% and your agents are generating 80%, now you've got a much more palatable and packageable business. You know, Absolutely. you don't want to be the person that is driving or managing or managing all the revenue relationships. You want that to be, regardless of whether you show up, you want to make sure that, you know, new customers are coming on board, invoices are getting paid and revenue and profit are being generated regardless of you. And that's, that goes back to that e-myth. But I think a lot of business owners fall into that category where, you know, they become the primary revenue driver and they try to package it and nobody wants to package it because it's too risky when they leave, the business is going to decline or fail completely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, some of the, some cool analogies or, or examples are, you know, if you look at Blue Man Group, right? If you've ever been to Vegas or Broadway, you look at Blue Man Group, it's a brilliant packaging as a business because they can have as many troops as they want because the faces are covered, right? Whereas when you're, you know, if you're doing Hamilton, you're like, well, who's, who's playing that role, right? And that makes a difference. Whereas with Blue Man Group, you remove that face. The same thing when you're working on your business as are you the face of this, of this business? And, you know, real estate agencies are often guilty of this where they're like, I'm selling me as the realtor. I'm going to service you, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of, well, you know, that's a difficult business to sell, right? Whereas if you have a business that's a property management company and it's, you know, you've removed the face, right? It's just, you know, the brand is the face, then that's a sellable business. Yeah. Um, love and it. so, yeah, you need to remove yourself. If your business relies on you, well, then you're a celebrity and it's not a business. Yeah. Love it. Also, one last thing, uh, diversifying your revenue. If you've got 80% of your revenue that's coming from two or three or four or maybe five clients, you know, that creates a lot more risk than if 80% of your revenue is coming from 100 or 200 or 300 clients, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have too much revenue in a very small pool of clients, that creates more risk. So you want to diversify that. When I sold my last business, I think the largest client that we had was doing, you know, multiple seven figures, but they were only doing like six or 7% of our total top line. So it made it very packageable, made it very, you know, they felt very comfortable with the fact that even if they lost that number one client, 
they were only going to lose 6% of their revenue versus 60% of their revenue, which is the right. case of a lot of small businesses. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, awesome. Well, listen, I'm sure we could sit here all day, Richard. I really appreciate it. Hey, listen, why don't a uh, couple quick, quick rapid fire questions. What's your, fa- you know, one answer or less short, quick answers, if you could. What's your favorite growth tool, software, app, something that you guys use to help grow your business? You know, I, I, I'm on LinkedIn all day and every day. And so um, LinkedIn had the power of LinkedIn and the reach of LinkedIn has um, definitely helped us in our growth. You know, when we were reaching out for new products or, or new features, that's the fastest response. And it, it goes into surfacing your network and, and having a, a valuable connection there. But uh, yeah, LinkedIn is, is what we live and breathe. Love it. No argument for me. Secondly, what would be one book that you would recommend to the audience, something that's helped you along and you think it might help them on their journey? One, one and one, one only. I know you're probably a guy who reads a lot of books. Okay. You know, one of the ones I'm reading right now, it's a super easy read. It's called Million Dollar Bedroom. And, you know, it's not, it's not about um, anything um, bad. It's, a, you know, it's, it's, it's about an entrepreneur's journey. And what I love about it is both its simplicity, but also its rawness. Like he just talks about everything right down to all of the nitty gritty details. And it's just like talking with a, a buddy and just hearing his journey. And I've just really enjoyed it. It's, it's nothing earth shattering, but it's an easy read. It's written by a, an, you know, an online entrepreneur. And um, I just found it really, uh, really fun to, to read. It's called The Million Dollar Bedroom. Perfect. And listen, so why don't we do this? Let everybody know how they can connect with you. I think they already know how to find logo.com. That's pretty easy. <laughs> you, you paid enough for that domain. So I think you made it easy for them. Let everybody know they can connect with you, learn more about what you got going on, and we'll wrap it up for today. Sure. Richard at logo.com. You know, hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm an open book and um, I'm here to be helpful. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. I'm sure we'll chat again soon. Thanks, Dennis. Listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in. I truly appreciate your time. If you're enjoying the podcast, then do me a huge favor. Click the subscribe button now and please leave me a review. It would mean a lot to me.